How's it going, everyone? This is Jansen Yamut, and this is the Orthopedic Fix Podcast, Episode 2. So today I want to talk about the gluteus medius muscle, and in particular, the posterior fibers of this muscle. Now, if you're wondering, why do I care about this muscle, and how does it affect me? Well, if this muscle is not performing properly, it can lead to hip pain, back pain, knee pain, ankle pain, and foot pain. So whenever I have a patient with any of these pains, I always go to the hip. The hip is one of the main drivers of how your leg moves as well as your back moves. So whether you're trying to treat pain or prevent pain, we have to look at the role of this muscle and how it's functioning. So being a physical therapist, everyone always asks me about different pains and aches they're having. What, what exercises can they do to treat this? What stretches can they do to treat this? And as I always explain, it's always not that easy because there's a lot of things that lead into pain. And usually there's just not one quick fix exercise to do. But with that being said, if I had to give four main exercises to someone, the gluteus medius exercises would always be included in the four big exercises for everybody to do to maintain health or to prevent pain. So I hope that one day physical therapy is looked at like a dentist and that you would get two checkup visits or two free visits per insurance in a, in a calendar year just so that we can assess how you move, talk about what you're doing during the day and how to prevent pain and or treat pain. So with that being said, the gluteus medius would always be included in one of the exercises that I have every single person do no matter what they're coming to me for. So the point I make in this podcast is I want to educate non-healthcare individuals and healthcare providers in the assessment and treatment of this muscle. So I think it's pretty cool that this small muscle has such profound implications on how your back moves and how your leg moves. And typically this muscle is almost always overlooked unless someone's well-educated about the topic. It's almost always overlooked in the gym. So typically this is not one of the muscles that you're going to train when you're doing a typical leg workout, which again, it can lead into so many different types of pains, which we'll get more into later on in this podcast. So before we get started, let's go over an anatomy lesson so we can understand how this plays into hip mechanics, back mechanics, and different pain presentations. So the gluteus medius is a muscle on the side of your hip. If you put your hand just below the upper portion of your hip bone, you're going to land somewhere on this, more, on this muscle. Sorry. More specifically, it originates on the gluteal or lateral surface of the ilium between the posterior and anterior gluteal lines. This is a large area reaching from the iliac crest above to the almost the sciatic notch below. The posterior fibers pass forwards and downwards, the middle fibers downwards, and the anterior fibers pass backwards and downwards. They all combine to form a flattened tendon which inserts onto the superlateral side of the greater trochanter of the femur. So that's important. So if you got anything out of that mumbling, it, it said it inserts on the superlateral side of the greater trochanter of the femur. And we'll get into this more in depth here in a second on why that matters so much. So when we're talking about the innervation of this muscle, the gluteus medius, it's supplied by the superior gluteal nerve, roots L4, 5, and 1. Cutaneous supply actually comes out a little bit higher at L1 and 2. Again, these levels are important. To just keep on the back burner for now, we'll come back to this here in a little bit. So now let's get into the actions. The actions of the, of the muscle are obviously straight abduction so the leg is coming away from the away from the body flexion and external rotation 
from the posterior fibers and extension and internal rotation from the anterior fibers. So then I'm not redundant in this podcast. I don't want to keep saying the posterior gluteus medius, so I'm just going to refer to this muscle as a PGM from now on. Okay, so for the average listener, why do you care about this muscle? What does this mean for function? Well, every time you take a step, this muscle is required for maintaining single leg stance or keeping the body upright, which is required, obviously, during walking, running, and all other upright activities. PGM is most active when the hip is flexed and slightly externally rotated. Note this is the PGM, not so the posterior fibers, not just the middle or anterior fibers. So every time you take a step, let's say you're taking a step forward with your right leg, it's going to move forward, it's going to flex, you're going to slightly externally rotate, and then your heel is going to hit the ground. So the muscle is going to start activating here, and then it's going to keep activating, or it's going to stay in activation once you're doing a single leg stance like in the middle of your walking, or during stance phase and walking. So if this muscle is weak, it can obviously have implications for hip pain and back pain. So the way that the analogy that I like to use is if your alignment's off in the car, you're going to get abnormal wear and tear of the tires or the axle or somewhere in the car. And same thing applies to this muscle. So let's take a look at how it can cause pain and why it can cause pain. Okay, so let's talk briefly about movement impairment syndromes. Now, the focus of this podcast is not to go in depth on movement impairment syndromes. We're going to touch on them briefly, and we'll come back to these in a later podcast. So typically, when you see lateral hip pain or pain on the outside of the hip, the two movement impairments that you're going to see from the hip standpoint is an anterior glide medial rotation syndrome of the femur or a hip adduction medial rotation syndrome of the femur. So let's talk about anterior glide medial rotation, and I'm just going to call this AGMR for anterior glide medial rotation. This being said, the femur will rotate medially, and this is due to a lengthened and weak PGM. Furthermore, you're going to see weak lateral rotators, so the gemellus superior and inferior and the obturator internus and externus are most likely going to be weak because those are lateral rotators. The glute max is most likely going to be weak as this is a lateral rotator, and, and you're going to have weakness in the psoas as this is a lateral rotator at end range. So conversely, you're going to have a short TFL muscle, which is going to cause internal rotation of the hip, and a dominant medial hamstring. Remember, this can happen because the semitendinosus and sem- semimembranosus are innervated by the tibial portion of the sciatic nerve, branches L5, 1, and 2, and the short-headed biceps femoris is innervated by the common fibular nerve, which originates slightly higher up usually starts at L4 to S2. With both of these syndromes, you're going to have excessive medial rotation. That's a take-home point of the femur. This is not good for the PGM muscle and the tendon, as this is going to cause compression of the tendon at the insertion point in a superior lateral portion of the greater trochanter. Again, this is taking the muscle out of the proper length tension relationship in order for it to contract maximally. Additionally, the trochanteric bursa is located between the gluteus medius tendon and the greater trochanter. So you're going to get compression of the bursa with both of these movement impairments. So you could have a tendon issue, you could have a bursa issue, or you could have both. So let's take a quick look at some research. Really, just to summarize, the research shows that compression is implicated in many of the tendinopathies, so you have to look at where the tendon is getting irritated and 
where the site of compression is. So there's a study by Soslowski. It's a rat study. Again, I know it's a rat study, but they looked at compression loads, tensile loads, and compression and tensile loads of a tendon. And it seems that the compression of the tendon causes the most disruption in the cell matrix of the tendon. So just going back to what we were talking about before, if you have compression of a tendon around a bone, this is going to cause the most breakdown. This is going to lead to pain. So just to summarize, if you have an AGMR or a hammer, remember hammers, hip adduction, rotation syndrome, the side of the compression is going to be the greater trochanter. So from a postural standpoint, don't sit cross-legged or don't sleep on the side during when you're having pain. So from a morphological cause or standpoint, I should say, we have to look at who's more prone to getting this. So typically females are going to be more prone to getting lateral hip pain due to the PGM tendon or the bursa because their hips are wider. So because female pelvic anatomy, their hips are a little bit wider, it's putting their legs in a slight adduction moment, which is lengthening the muscle and the tendon, which is going to cause lateral hip pain and PGM tendinopathy. Conversely, men are more prone to hip adduction tubercle insertional tendinopathy because men have smaller hips, so both of the legs are going to be a, in a slight abduction moment, which is constantly putting pressure on the tendons in this area. So any sort, any sort of excessive hip abduction that a man may not be used to can cause an insertional tendinopathy in the groin. So going back to lateral hip pain and the PGM, some hallmark signs of tendon pain from this tendon would be lying on that side causes pain, single leg stance activities like walking stairs, running and jumping on that side. On the outside of your hip could be indicative of PGM tendinopathy. Typically, these pain presentations start after a change in activity, usually a sudden increase or a change in activity level. So if you increase your activity level, you haven't been active, you can expect to see more tendon problems with this. So not to get too far off in the weeds with the anatomy, but we have to take a look at mobilization of a tissue. So in regards to the ground substance with mobilization, the amount of water, hyaluronic acid and gags decrease significantly in the ground substance with mobilization, which will lead to decreased lubrication between the collagen fibers. Collagen fiber interspace. So this just means that you're setting your tendon up for breakdown if you haven't moved in two to 10 days, because remember that's a turnover rate for ground substance. So if you take two to 10 days off from an activity and then you resume the activity at your normal level, you could be in trouble in regards to um, the physiology of the tendon. So you just, you want to make sure that you're reintegrating yourself into activity properly after a period of immobilization. That's why I think that during off-season athletes should continue to load themselves so they can they should continue to work out obviously at a decreased frequency intensity time duration a uh, time duration etc cetera, etc cetera. but i still think there needs to be some amount of loading due to the ground substance turnover there's a link of how active you were as a child and the percent chance that you'll have a tendon problem later in life in summary essentially the more you work out as a kid the less chance you're going to have at injuring a tendinous structure as an adult some other things that will lead into tendon pain are systemic diseases like diabetes, cholesterol, high cholesterol, 
There's also a genetic predisposition to some tendon injuries, breast cancer, metabolic status, rheumatic conditions like Crohn's, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, and BMIs greater than 30. So, if you have pain, a lot of people are going to say, can I get an injection in that? Well, it depends. On a reactive tendinopathy, injections work great. So usually reactive tendinopathies are someone that's younger, overdoes it during a workout, has pain, pain in a tendon area, they get an injection, it's all good. But it's terrible for degenerative tendinopathies, which is what most people have and most of us are dealing with later on in life. And this is because the corticosteroids are potent cell modulators. So they basically damp down cell activity and proliferation and can have long-term effects, weeks to months, in tendon and other structural composition. So all this means is you have to be careful when deciding to get an injection because it may not always be the best course of action for the pain that you're having, as it can cause breakdown of the tissues surrounding the injection site. So now we have to talk about the evaluation and treatment of this muscle. So I always start by watching the patient walk, as watching someone walk can paint a picture about how their body is moving. So if you see weakness in this muscle, what you're going to see is, let's say the right hip is weak. Every time that they stand on that leg while they're walking, you could see a little bit of a hip drop. So their pelvis is going to slant downwards to the left. Or conversely, you can see the femur or the leg rotating inward. So the knee going in towards the middle of their body. Or you can see both their hip could drop and their femur could rot rotate internally immediately. And then think again about the movement impairments that we were talking about earlier in this podcast. So after the person walks, I will then have them single leg stance and observe for lumbar, hip, knee, and ankle mechanics. I do this again with single leg squat, pistol squat, jumps, cuts, and so forth, depending on the activity level of the patient. This is a good time to talk about palpation. Can palpation be used to determine the tissue that's affected? If it's a PGM tendon issue, they usually point, so if it's a tendon issue, they're usually going to point to the tendon with one finger where the pain is. So in regards to PGM, if they have a PGM tendon issue, they're usually going to point to the greater trochanter. However, if you have a trochanteric bursa issue, typically the pain presentation is they're going to kind of make a cup around the greater trochanter. The pain is going to be a little bit more diffuse. So if they're having pain that radiates more than about a hand's width away from the greater trochanter, you have to, other, you have to look for other sources of pain. Usually look higher up in the lumbar spine. If you're having pain radiating below the knee, obviously this is not a tendon or bursa issue in this area. So palpation is a poor outcome measure. The tendon is going to remain sore on palpation even when the patient is pain-free and back to full function playing sport. It's also a poor diagnostic sign. So all athletic tendons are sore on palpation. Palpation soreness is not linked to either symptoms or image findings. So in short, do not use palpation to confirm your diagnosis. Furthermore, do not let the patient poke their tendon. It's not good for healing, and it's not good for confidence during the healing process, as we know it's a poor outcome. So just leave that tendon alone. Some common misdiagnosis of lateral hip pain from the PGM would be hip joint osteoarthritis and lumbar involvement. So let's get into testing strength for the PGM. So I'm going to have the patient sideline. I'm going to have them scoot to the edge of the table. I'm going to stabilize their pelvis with my hips making sure that they're not having any compensatory movement 
backwards while I'm testing. So I'm holding their, their pelvis with my hips. I'm going to put their legs slightly in flexion and external rotation. I'm going to have them hold it. Now, if their hips rock backwards or their leg rotates medially, I'm automatically going to give this muscle a 3 minus because it cannot hold the testing position. Conversely, you can do this by yourself to test to see if you're strong. You can get both shoulders touching the wall, both hips touching the wall. You can abduct your leg, slightly externally rotate, and see if you can hold that. So here's a little clinical pearl. If you test the PGM and it's, there's weakness here, go to the back and look at levels L3-4 and L4-5. If there's a joint dysfunction here, manipulate this segment and then go back and test the strength. If there's lumbar involvement, the strength should improve, which is awesome because then you have patient buy-in with manual therapy. If strength doesn't improve, that's okay. Go elsewhere. We can still strengthen other muscles to get them better. So obviously you will need a physical therapist to assess this. So if you are having hip pain, definitely go in to see your physician and physical therapist. All right, so here's the part of the podcast where we talk about treating the tendon. So how do we treat the PGM tendon? Well, starting with isometrics is great. Isometrics should be done in the form of four to five sets with 45-second holds, two-minute rest breaks in between each set. The two-minute rest break is crucial during isometrics because it allows for cortical inhibition. So tendon breakdown and tendon pain is a cell-modulated activity. So you have to take into consideration that mechanotransduction is real here. There's a complex mechano-electrochemical sensory system in this area. So cells are integrally connected, integrally connected to the matrix, and the connections are through the proteoglycans and integrins with connection through the cell nucleus. So there will be an altered gene expression in response to the mechanical load. So when taking a look at the cells, they can detect and respond to movement through cilia and integrins. So with that being said, you need to attempt to load the tendon without stimulating the cell matrix through movement. So how do we use this in tendons? So we want to sustain contraction away from the side of compression. We want the tendon length to be short, and we, we want to have little pain. So I always say less than 2 out of 10 pain during the activity and less than 2 out of 10 pain the next morning. So the loads need to be heavy. Ideally, I know that for a long time, physical therapy tried to get away from exercise machines, but exercise machines are actually really good in treating different tendon pains, and we'll get into those in later podcasts. So initially, we want to avoid exercises that require postural control. So if you can, have them seated or lying down. And if they are required to stand for the exercise, make sure they have good support. They need to do the exercise three to four times a day if needed. You want them to be at 70% of their max voluntary contraction. So really, at the end of the 45-second holds, they should be fatiguing out pretty good. If they're not, they need to push harder. And obviously, you don't want to go into end range here, and you don't want to go into uh, the painful range of motion. So this is why passive interventions don't fix anything here. They do absolutely nothing to address the capacity and therefore the function of the tendon. So obviously, don't cross-friction the tendon. Don't use ultrasound. The tendons don't get blood supply like a muscle and bone do, which take about 8 to 12 weeks to heal. Tendons can take longer than 6 months to return to normal activity. And they're probably going to look the same on images before and after interventions, so you can't get bogged down on the images with these patients. So looping back around, this is why adjunct therapies, things that probably do not help but make 
may make the patient feel better. Ice, electrotherapy modalities, taping, bracing, orthotics, massage, things that do not help and actually can make the tendons worse are cross-fiction, again, the electrotherapy modalities, and stretching. You definitely don't want to stretch a tendon because you're adding compression to the insertional tendinopathy, which is going against everything we're trying to fix here. So, here's the most important part of the podcast. How do you fix it? So, let's talk about exercises lying down first, and then we'll move from there. So, we need to look at some research real quick to understand why we're doing, why we're prescribing different exercises here. So, so I'm going to post some videos on Instagram of me doing different exercises just to explain these a little bit better. This one, It will be a little bit better for the visual learners. But essentially, you want the hip to be in neutral. So you want to do a little bit of a posterior pelvic tilt during your sideline clamshells as this is going to engage the PGM muscle the most. Now, as far as the hip angle, you want the hip to be flexed to about 60 degrees for maximum PGM recruitment, and then this is also going to decrease the TFL activity during the exercise. So when talking about progressions, you want to start with non-weight bearing, basic weight bearing exercises such as clamshells, sideline hip, abdu- hip abduction, standing abduction, single leg balance exercises. These are all going to be kind of the intro exercises to start the patient off with. And then the second phase is going to progress to weight-bearing ex- exercises that gradually progress stability, such as translating the center of gravity outside the base of support. And the third phase is going to be returning the patient to their activity that they want to return to. So looking at more research, let's take a look at which exercises engage the PGM the most. So think of doing a side plank with a clamshell with the good or with the affected side up and down. Those are both going to recruit the most muscle activity. If the patient can handle this, this is awesome. This is a really good exercise. Typically, if it's pretty painful tendon, I'm okay with just a clamshell or single leg balance to start off with. But progressing them through the rehab protocol, uh, the the sideline plank with a clamshell is awesome. After these exercises, single leg squats, clamshells, front plank with hip extension, sideline abduction, lateral step out, pelvic drop, single leg deadlift, forward step up, clamshells. Now those are in order of increasing, or I'm sorry, of decreasing muscle activity. So you need to figure out where the patient is from a tissue and subject reactivity standpoint and then prescribe the appropriate exercises. Now going back to the movement impairments, We have to help the lateral rotators of the hip as much as we can to take pressure off the PGM tendon. So we definitely need to strengthen the deep lateral rotators of the hip. So what I like doing is I I like doing exercises called pretzels. So I have the patient, let's say we're treating the right side. I have them lying on the right side if they can tolerate it. I'm going to have them flex their hip up to 90 degrees with their foot just off the table. And I'm going to have them rotate their foot towards the ceiling, holding for about five seconds going to fatigue. After about two to three minutes of that, I'm going to extend their right hip, still lying on the right side, to neutral. I'm going to put a bolster under their top leg, under their left leg. And then this is also another form of pretzel, but it's going to be where their hip is at zero degrees, trying to take out as much TFL as we can. Again, I'm going to have them go until fatigue. Now, we're also going to have to strengthen psoas and 
glute max, and there's plenty of ways to do that, but we will get into those differently in different podcasts, or we will get into those in different podcasts.